0: that's a pretty fitting prayer uh, given this new series we're doing in Hebrews. Uh, We're calling Jesus is greater. We just want to behold our God through Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his character, his nature. And so if we want to know God better, we need to know Jesus better. We need to be convinced that there's no better way to connect to God. There's nothing that can keep us from God because of Jesus. And so that's why we're doing this, uh, this new series. One of the commentators I've been reading, uh, he's a scholar and uh, professor at the seminary that Kyle and I attended, actually, Michael Kruger. And he wrote a, a commentary for Hebrews. And he says that Hebrews can be summed up in one simple phrase. Jesus is better. We're just saying greater instead of better. Uh, there is nothing grander, greater, more beautiful, more wonderful, more satisfying, or more extraordinary than, than Jesus. Amen. So if you've got uh, your Bibles, let's open to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to go through uh, verses 5 through 14, and what you're going to see is it's a lot of quotes. You'll, you'll see either printed in your bulletin or in your Bibles. Um, there are seven Old Testament references uh, telling us about the, the supremacy of Jesus, particularly in comparison with the angels. And we're going we're to look at uh, these heavenly beings in, in, uh, in just a moment. But let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let me pray for us. Lord, we're grateful for your word. Thank you for revealing Jesus to us that we might know you better. Lord, we pray that you would uh, convince us, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and in all the ways that that would apply, that Jesus is greater. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Was anybody counting? Did Did you notice how many? Old Testament quotations are are being used here in chapter one to to, to make the case for the supremacy of Jesus in relation to the angels. If you added them up, you'd come up with the number seven, Um, and that's one of those kind of numbers in the Bible where you you go, okay, maybe that's significant. And in fact, it is, Uh, you know, there's seven days of creation. Why? Well, because by day seven, the Lord said, we're done here. You know, uh, this is this is good. It's 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 exactly the way it needs to be, and uh, and so there's some um, credence to the, the the fact that there are seven you know references here saying, okay, we're done here. We've made the case that Jesus is far far superior even to the angels. So let me just kind of begin by saying I, I'm aware that there's probably a, a very broad swath of opinions and, and thoughts about what angels are in, in this room, because we, we get a, a really, really broad um, uh, concept of, of angelic beings in our culture. So if, you, if you've spent a lot of time in church and in the Bible, then hopefully you've, you've got a biblical view of, of the angels. But Listen, if you're new to the Bible or new to church, we're A, we're glad you're here. But but B, it's it's not gonna surprise anybody if you've kind of got an idea of angels as something that, I don't know, um, like the the, the Baroque painters would have would have you know put in our heads, uh guys like Raphael who would uh paint these glorious visions and then you know these cute little cherubs at the bottom of the painting, and they're just looking up, you know, these little rascals, and we and then we we Photoshop, copy and paste onto coffee mugs and mouse pads and greeting cards, you know, and, and turn into cupids and, you know, these adorable little, little, little angel angelic beings with their chubby cheeks that you just want to, you know, pinch and they're so cute. Um, well, listen, angels in the Bible are vastly different beings and we have to, we, we, we want our thinking to, to correspond with the kingdom of God. So, so let's, let's look at what the Bible says about angels for just a second, then we're gonna get back to, to Hebrews 1. Um, but just to give us some bearing, the, the dictionary of biblical imagery, which is a fantastic resource, by the way. I've got it right above my desk and I pull it down frequently. Uh, and if you just go to A, you know, look up angels, uh, here's the entry. Angels are supernatural beings closely linked with the work of God himself. A human encounter with an angel is in some sense an encounter with the divine. Their primary activities are praise and worship of God in his heavenly court, making announcements and carrying messages on behalf of God to humans, intervening with guidance and protection in the lives of people, and dispensing the judgments of God. Let's just take a quick survey based based on that list. So, angels are worshiping beings, right? It's a really really uh, familiar passage in the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy. In chapter six, uh, the prophet's carried into God's throne room. He has this vision of the Lord on high, and he he can only see the back of the Lord. Remember how Moses can only see the back of God's glory? You can only see the train of, of the Lord's robe filling the temple. Um, and so if, if Isaiah is looking at the back of the Lord on his throne, what he sees facing him are the seraphim. Uh, these angelic beings with six wings and with you know, two of the wings they're flying, with two of the wings they're covering their, their face, and with two of the wings they're covering their body because they're, they're humbled in the presence of the Lord's holiness. These are, these are, are sinless celestial beings, and they still feel the otherness, you know, of God and his holiness, and so they have to cover themselves. And they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and they do that perpetually. So sure, um, these seraphim, uh, these angels, they are worshiping God, uh, and they never get tired, they never get bored, and and that, that seems to be at least in that category of angels, that's their job. There's another, another role for angels in that they, uh, they guard God's holiness. You know, here's the seraphim in God's throne room, and, and, and they feel the, the reality of God's holiness. And then on earth, angels are there to, to protect God's holiness from you know, basically our own lack thereof. Uh, so when Adam and Eve sinned and they're expelled from the garden, In Genesis 3, we're told that that the Lord drove out the man at the east end of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Um, These are not cute and cuddly cherubs. Uh, The cherubim are warrior angels with flaming swords. barring Barring access to sinful beings... So they do not have access to God's presence. And then when you get to the rest of Exodus, and they're, they're outlining how the tabernacle is going to be made, there's a curtain surrounding the courtyard, there's another curtain in between the holy place and the most holy place, and, and the instructions were into those curtains you're to weave images of the cherubim. A reminder that this is sacred space. It's separate from the world, it's holy and that God's angelic beings protect the holiness of that place. So angels worship God, they, they protect God's holiness, they, they deliver God's messages. You know, we're not so unfamiliar with, with this. Uh, Luke 1, you know, the angel, who um, answers Zechariah in the temple. Uh, Zechariah is one of the priests. He goes in to offer the prayers of the people in the temple at the appointed time. And, and, and lo and behold, there's an angel there. And he says to Zechariah, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you, to bring this good news to you. Presumably, you know, this, Gabriel appears to Mary. Gabriel appears to Joseph, presumably to the Magi, uh, bringing these messages from God. The angels also bring the law of God. Um, I I know we read in Exodus, Moses goes up on the mountain, receives the stone tablets directly from God. There's another sort of sense in which the angels are intermediaries bringing God's laws. Uh, You know, Paul says as much in Galatians 3, Why then the law, and he talks about the role of the law, and he says it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the angels aren't just, you know, couriers, you know, FedEx deliverers, you know, with God's messages, but but bringing the law itself. Uh, And also we see how angels are are serving to protect God's people, uh, that they have a role in our lives, uh, keeping us from harm. Uh, Jesus talked about you know, guardian angels over our, our children, and in Exodus 14, again, that picture of you know, where God's law was delivered, the, the people of Israel are escaping Egypt, right? They're, they're on the run from Pharaoh and his chariots, and they get pinned up against the edge of the Red Sea, and they're stuck, and they're thinking, this is it, we're dead. We, we should never have left Egypt, right? But no, God's got mercy on them, He's kind to them. And the pillar of cloud, that Shekinah glory cloud that was God's presence going with them moves from the front of of Israel's army to the back to come in between them and Egypt's army. And we read how then the angel of God, right? That's not just sort of this impersonal cloud, but the angel of God was going before the host of Israel and moved and went behind them so that the pillar of cloud would come between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So God's angels protect his people. There's lots of different things that angels do besides appear on mugs and greeting cards. Um, The angels are bringing God's law, they're bringing his messages, they're worshiping God, they're guarding his holiness, they're guarding his people and protecting his people. Now, you know, most of the time when, when an angel shows up in Scripture, we're, we're used to a certain dialogue that ensues between the angel and the person that, is, that they're appearing to. Uh, and it begins with basically two words. Anybody remember what the two words are that always begin these dialogues, it seems? Fear not, right? So certainly when, when the angel shows up to the shepherds, the, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were, they were filled with great fear. They were, they were sore afraid, as King James reminds us. And the angel says to them, fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And, and that's one of those episodes that, that, that's a, a joyful encounter. But we would be remiss if we weren't circumspect to look at the different places where the angels do appear in that's not always how the dialogue goes. Because the angels weren't just heavenly beings. they, they brought heavenly warnings. We should have a heavenly caution uh, as, as we think about angels, because they didn't always tell people, "Don't be afraid." In fact, there are many, many occasions where, where, where terror was the appropriate reaction. It was absolutely the right response to an angel appearing. Because God's angels were sometimes his agents of judgment. You remember, you know, before that pillar of cloud protected God's people at the edge of the Red Sea and coming in between Israel and Egypt's army. Well, they didn't even get out of Egypt before God sent the plagues on Pharaoh. The very last plague was the plague on the firstborn. And if you didn't have the blood of the lamb... Spread across your, your doorframe, God would judge the firstborn of that household. But we're told that the Lord passed through to strike the Egyptians, and when he saw the blood on the post and lintel of the two of the doorframe, the Lord would pass over that door and would not allow the destroyer to enter their houses to strike them. The destroyer, you know, in in Hebrew. Uh, Scholarship, that's regarded as the angel of death, the destroyer angel. Genesis 19, when uh, Lot, when when Abraham is uh, leaving and and, uh, he wants his his relative Lot to come with him, the angels go to Sodom, two angels, and they appear to, to Lot to call him out of that city and they say that they are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against the people has, come, has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy this city. These are angels, right? Meeting out um, God's judgments and fear and terror are the appropriate reactions. In Revelation, the scrolls and the, the bowls of incense, you know, all of those judgments are carried out by these angelic beings. So heavenly caution is appropriate in the presence of angels. There's one further note of caution. For all their their glory, for all their power, for all of their holiness, the angels want to make very, very clear that they are not to be venerated as objects of worship. Um, Again, Revelation, when the Apostle John is seeing all these visions, and he's overcome, and he doesn't know what to think You know, there's this sort of uh, interesting episode in chapter 19 where the angel tells John, "Write, write this, write this down, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he said to John, these are the true words of God. And then John writes, and I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. For I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. It's wrong to worship the angels. But it's right to give our praise to the creator and the redeemer, right? So now back to, to Hebrews. We've looked at some of what the angels do, who they are, and, and, and their role in God's kingdom. And now, so the author of Hebrews is going to say, in light of these truths about the angels, let's look at Jesus. And, and the author of Hebrews wants us to worship him who the angels fear. Worship God, right? And um, if you look back earlier, we looked at uh, the verses, you know, the first few verses last week, but, but look at the, the second half of verse 3 and 4. After making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's from Psalm 2. And then he quotes again, this time from Psalm 89, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So. The the word son is much, much more than just a familial um, designation, like this is who this person is in relation to me. It's a title. The word son is is a a rank. It's an expression of authority. Angels had rank and, and authority and titles. They had names like the cherubim and the seraphim. We don't actually know kind of the etymology of what those, those words mean, but they are certainly divisions within the heavenly hosts. And angels had different names. Um, there was Gabriel, you know, we, we saw his encounter with Zechariah. Gabriel means God is my strength. There's the archangel, not only Gabriel, but also Michael. And God, Michael's name means who is like God. Um, that, that suffix on the end of each of those names, L, is... You know, a common word for a deity or for God. So the angels have names, the angels have titles, but none of the angels has the name or the title Son, the Son of God. That's unique because Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. He's the, the firstborn, uh, an indicator of authority, uh, the, 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 his, his right to be the heir of all things, right, in relation to his father. And then every quote that, that follows, the next five Old Testament references are God speaking about his son, right? And, uh, and, and the son is worshiped by the angels. He not only has a, a superior title, but he, he has a superior existence. The angels worship him, uh, is the quote from well, it's, it's, it's in two places in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32 and, and Psalm 97, let all God's angels worship him. And God says about the angels that they are his winds, his ministers and a flame of fire. And you can see that referenced in Psalm 104. The angels worship Jesus. They're servants, they're, they're ministers. They're like the priests uh, who give worship uh, to God. You know, in Revelation five, we get a picture of what is around the throne, around the, the the lamb, are these concentric circles of of beings, and you know, immediately around the throne are those four creatures: one that has the head of a ox, the other a head of a lion, the other looks like an eagle, the other looks like a human, and they're just kind of honestly, the description is they're, they're strange looking. Um, it's very, very otherworldly, and then you've got elders and apostles and other heavenly hosts. And then we read how John looked and he heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing, and they are worshiping Jesus for an eternity. Not just, not just from Isaiah's vision, you know, the Lord, uh, but, but also the, the Son, who is co-eternal with the Father, you know, in a mysterious way that we, we don't have time to go into, but the Son, too. And of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So Jesus in his role at the center of the universe is anointed with the oil of gladness. And, and, and in their worship of this good, glad God. Um, we, there's some spillover to, in, to, to that gladness. The, the joy of heaven is something that we look forward to. Heaven isn't a gloomy, somber place. When you, when you think of the seraphim and the cherubim and all these angelic beings, they're not so overwhelmed with the holiness of God that there's not gladness there too. Jesus was telling his disciples, you know what? when you picture heaven, and when you picture those who come into his kingdom, when you picture those who Jesus has come into the world to rescue and he, who he is gathering together and, and, and blessing with his kingdom, he says, look, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Like that's Jesus's mission is to to bring sinners into God's kingdom so that we would turn from all the ways that we, like Adam and Eve, have rebelled and, and have disqualified ourselves from God's presence and really have angels keeping us from God's holiness because of our sinfulness. Jesus comes to rescue us and bring us back into God's presence. And that makes the angels happy. These warrior beings with flaming swords Are smiling and rejoicing at the thought of you and I turning from our independence and our autonomy and turning to Jesus in dependence and repentance. Um, If you've been at Tabernacle for any amount of time, you you know I'm a Tolkien fan. You know I love Middle Earth. You know I'm a fan of the movies, sure, but the the books are, are better. You know, read the books. Um, and, uh, you know, when you get to the last book, the, the, the Return of the King, it sets up for the epic battle, you know, for the fate of Middle-earth. And you've got Mordor and Sauron and all of the darkness and all the shadow encroaching upon uh, Minas Tirith and over the Pelennor fields. And you've got the armies of Mordor spilling out to invade Minas Tirith. You've got the Minas Tirith and, you know, all the... The people of Gondor, the soldiers with their helmets with wings on them, and you've got the armies of of Rohan coming on their horses, and they're just meeting on the Pelennor fields, and it's this great battle. And I just want you to imagine these these awesome soldiers, these strong, powerful beings with their swords and their their helmets with wings on them, these almost angelic-like soldiers. Imagine them stopping to smile. And laughing at the thought of the weakest and the neediest and the most desperate being brought under the king's canopy, being brought into his city and rejoicing at this work to to bring goodness and beauty and light back to Middle Earth. I mean, that's just a picture. Tolkien's just giving us a picture of the, the gladness and the beauty of these these warriors rejoicing over one sinner who repents. That our King, our, our the King, Jesus, is anointed with the oil of gladness. That, that just because the angels are these terrifying beings doesn't mean that they're not also glad to. Over us who repent of our sins and come to Him. More quotes in verse 10, this time from Psalm 102, talking about how Jesus laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of his hands, right? Jesus is the source and the creator of the heavens. That makes him the source and the creator of the heavenly hosts. The creator of the angels. And that makes him greater than the angels. To which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Quoting Psalm 110, no angel has ever been exalted to God's right hand. Only Jesus. He's the creator of the angels. He's the king of the When he, went, when he was in Gethsemane with his disciples and they see the lynch mob coming with their swords and clubs and, and fire and lanterns coming to arrest Jesus, there's, there's, a, there's this panic. You know, the disciples don't know how to respond, how to react. They, their instinct is to protect Jesus and one of them pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear for the high priest's guard and Jesus actually heals the, the guardsman. Tells Peter, put away your sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Legions 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. In a step, Jesus can have Thousands and thousands of warriors with flaming swords right at his side as the king of angels, the king of legions. But what does he do? Instead of destroying his opponents, he allowed himself to be destroyed. He went to a cross instead of to a throne. He was crushed instead of his enemies. Angels, you know, they come and they declare God's word. Jesus is God's word. And the angels would convey God's law. Jesus came to keep God's law for us. The angels would administer God's judgment, but Jesus absorbed God's judgment for us as our substitute. And the angels would would protect us from harm, but Jesus suffered harm. The angels rejoice in God's salvation, but Jesus accomplished it in his atoning, substitutionary death on the cross so that any of us, any person in this room, any person on this planet can turn from our rebellion, from our sin, and look to Jesus and and, and know that there is my substitute, fully human, just like I am, and therefore qualified to bear my punishment in my place, and fully God, and therefore qualified to forgive my sins against God. An angel can't forgive my sin because I haven't sinned against an angel. I've sinned against God. And therefore Jesus can forgive my sin. He can forgive your sin. He can forgive anyone's sin. An angel cannot. And that's why Jesus is greater than an angel. That's why Peter says the angels long to look in to the salvation that we've inherited. Well, so what? I mean, that's, that's really cool. All this stuff about angels and Jesus is greater than the angels. So what? what what's the point? The point is Romans is, is Hebrews 14. 114. Look at, look, at, look at verse 14. Are are not all the angels ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Oh. Jesus, who is the son, who is the heir to all things, now we are declared those who will also inherit salvation, who are co-heirs with Jesus. And then the, the angels, these powerful beings, who Jesus is even greater than these beings, they now serve us? Let's, let's, let's back up just a second as, as, as we kind of are at the end here. I want to just walk you through this progression of thought that Richard Baxter, a, a Puritan pastor, makes really, really clear, and I think it's super helpful, just simplifies it. He says three things in his book, A Christian Directory. He says, what a dignity is it that those holy angels should be all ministering spirits sent for our good? Like, how amazing is it that they would serve us? These beings who are so powerful, so glorious, so holy, would actually care about our lives, would, would long to look into the affairs of our salvation who would delight to come and serve and to help and protect us. Like, I'm in the habit of praying, you know, when we I pray for my family, I pray for you all, Lord, Lord, protect them, send your spirit to protect them. Do you know that the agency of those prayers is being answered through angels? It's true. These angels who are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So these beings that are greater than us are serving us. And that's remarkable, but it doesn't stop there. Baxter continues, yet it is a higher declaration of our dignity that we should in heaven be equal with them. We be numbered into their society and join with them everlastingly in praise of our creator. Didn't Wasn't it Jesus who said, you know, in heaven you're not going to marry and be given in marriage, you're going to be like the angels. equal with them, praising the same Jesus, praising around the throne in the same concentric circles. And Baxter says there's one more thing. And yet it is a greater honor to us that our natures are assumed into the union of person with the Son of God and so advanced above the angels. Jesus didn't take on the nature of an angel. He took on human nature. We have our own flesh and blood in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father above the angels. Jesus is greater than the angels. And in an incredible, it's exciting, it's humbling, remarkable way, our union with Jesus means that we share in his exaltation above the angels. And it's hard to imagine right now with our decaying bodies and you know scratchy throats and hearts that wander and flit you know, between faithfulness and unfaithfulness and just all of our limitations that there really is a day coming when we're gonna be transformed into something even more glorious than an angel. And some of you might be thrilled at that prospect. You're going, oh, boy, I can't wait. That's awesome. Well, if that's the case, wonderful. That's, that's biblical. That's our inheritance. That's what's waiting for us. But we need to note to caution this side of heaven. We need to be careful of the same pride that led some of the angels to their own destruction. Paul would remind all of us that those who are heirs with Christ in His supremacy are first called to participate in His humility. And Romans 8 says that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So if you're thrilled at the prospect of being honored with Jesus above the angels, that's biblical. Some of you may not quite know what to do with this reality, this truth regarding us and the angels. It feels maybe uncomfortable, somehow sort of like wrong somehow. This doesn't feel right. How can we be above the angels? But it is no fault of the servant. If the master exalts him. This is, a, this is the scandal of grace, right? That Jesus came to, to save sinners, to, to not just to pardon us, not just to put up with us, not just to kind of get us off on some technicality and then consign us to the corner of heaven here. You sit there, you know, and mind your business. No. We're received, we're loved, we're accepted, we're adopted. We're brought in and counted as a member of the family. He will exalt us. He will join us to himself. And how much honor does he deserve for so honoring us? Think about that. And if that still feels a little too weird to try on for yourself, we need to take that to heart on behalf of our neighbor. I know you're tired of me quoting C.S. Lewis and the weight of glory, but here's one more. He says, look, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. He's like, I get it, it's okay. But it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about the potential glory of his neighbor. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you could talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror in a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the gospel, the gospel of Jesus' greatness. And how he demonstrated that greatness, not in wielding all of his power and might and calling upon legions and legions of angels to destroy his enemies, but in allowing himself to be destroyed for our sake, to bear our sin. And then rising again and to defeat death and defeat our enemies and to prove once and for all that the debt is paid and that our sins are forgiven and that we really truly are new creations, united to Jesus with a hope and a future in heaven, around the throne, not just just equal with angels, but actually exalted above them in our union with you. Lord, would you help us to, to regard ourselves rightly? Would you help us to regard our neighbors rightly? Would you help us to see one another as bearers of glory In union with Jesus. Would you help us to know that you are the only one who can forgive our sins and deliver us from the sentence for them? Well, we pray for this church that you would help us to be convinced that Jesus is greater than anything that could ever separate us from your love and that you are greater than.